You're listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks, I have a fresh conversation with inspiring, interesting, and knowledgeable people. My conversation today is with Avery Sharp, acoustic and electric bass musician. Avery is truly an ordinary person living an extraordinary life and an inspiration. I'm thrilled to reconnect with Avery as he and my first husband, Joseph Ferrelli, played in a quartet together, and Avery was the best man at our wedding. So I have a fond spot in my heart for him. Some of the great musicians Avery has played with are McCoy Tyner, Archie Shep, Art Blakey, Dizzy Gillespie, and Pat Metheny. This should be a fun conversation. Hi, Avery. How are you? How you doing? I'm great. <laughs> oh, it's so great to reconnect. This is this is one of the main things that I really like about doing the podcast is reconnecting with with people that I've lost touch with. Yeah, let's, let's not make it another thirty years before we talk. <laughs> I think that's a really good idea. Uh, before we start, I'd like to read just a couple of quotes that I found about you. Would that be okay? Sure. Okay, here's the first one. Regardless of the setting, Avery Sharp always brings both exceptional musical skill and unswerving honesty to the endeavor. You can be sincere or you can be jive about what you do, he says. People might not be able to tell at first, but if you're really sincere, it will come through. And this one I thought was really nice. Forget about categories like mainstream and fusion and neo-bop. I don't even know what Neobop is, but because if there is one thing you can say about Avery Sharp, it's that there is no label worth hanging on him except musician. And at that, he's extraordinary. Pretty cool. There were a lot more, actually, of wonderful quotes about what a great musician you are and what a great person you are. So, but I just picked two. (laughs) (laughs) So how about starting with... um, yeah, I mean, you've done so much. You've played with so many great people. I'm sure you've got some great stories, which we'd love to hear. Um, but tell us a little bit about how you got interested in music. What what inspired you? Well, first off, uh, my you know people always ask me that. My biggest inspiration is my mother, mm-hmm. um, because um, she's a piano player in the um, church, Church of God in Christ, Sanctified mm-hmm. Church, Holy Roller Church. <laughs> and um, there, I'm number six of eight kids. Oh, my goodness. I didn't and, realize that. Yeah, we're two years apart, up to me. Mm-hmm. And then there's six years between me, my baby sister, and then there's six years between my baby sister and my baby brother. But I was the first one to actually, you know, got a chance to spend some time with my mother. And what people don't realize, uh, even though I was uh, raised my kids in Massachusetts and people identified with me with Massachusetts, I was actually born in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't you sound know. like it. No, I mean, that's because I was in the. Uh, my father was in the service, and we did a lot of traveling. Ah, okay. And so we we were in a lot of different places, but you know, I was born in uh, in Georgia in the segregated South, and uh, raised partially there. Um, and my mother um, played, you know, like I said, for a lot of churches and people who don't really understand the um, churches that a lot of African Americans go to. They mostly identify black folks as being Baptist, mm, but we're, mm-hmm. we are the, uh, the Pentecostal, the Holy Rollers. We're the ones that you see uh, when you see films on TV, people getting happy and speaking in tongues, you know, rolling down the aisles and that kind of stuff uh-huh. around the church, um, you know, filled with the spirit. 
so that's the way that I was raised. And those were the kind of services that I went to because I got a chance to spend a lot of time with my mother because, um, and what people don't understand about uh, Pentecostal church, it's not that you just go to church once a week for a particular amount of time. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, during that time, uh, during uh, the Church of God in Christ, Sunday was just a wash. You know, you started your day Sunday, 10 a.m. was um, uh, was Sunday school, mm-hmm. which lasted till about 11:30, and then 11:45 you had regular church service that go went till about two o'clock or whenever the Lord touched the minister's heart to let you leave. Oh wow! And then we go home for dinner, come back at 6:30 for YPWW, which I guess would be the equivalent uh, for Catholics it would be a catechism, mm-hmm. Bible study. Mm-hmm. And then eight o'clock that evening, you'd have regular church service. So you'd be in church literally from almost from 10 o'clock a.m. to 10 o'clock that night. Oh, my then goodness. Monday, Monday, you might be off. Tuesday, you would have Tuesday night prayer. Wednesday, you might have a women's Bible study. Mm-hmm. Thursday, you would have choir rehearsal. Friday, you would have regular church service. And I really dislike uh, Friday services because it, it got into my um, TV time. I wanted to watch <laughs> the Wild Wild West. <laughs> And I couldn't watch the Wild Wild West because I had to be in church. <laughs> and Saturday, you might be off or you might, there might be a special program in your fellowship. And then the week would start all over again on Sunday. So that's how uh, I spent uh, basically my childhood. And um, my mother was in the church, but my father was not in the, into the church. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which, when, when my father passed, I told my mother, I, I said, Mom, I know it might have been rough for you, but I'm glad Dad was not into the church because they gave me a a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mm-hmm. would just, he was very honest about things and probably more spiritual than a lot of people that I knew who were in the church. <laughs> and um, so he would just give me the, the rundown, you know. She would say, well, you know, Reverend so-and-so. And my father said, no, Reverend so-and-so was at the crap table with me last night. So, no, he's not. <laughs> what you think he did? <laughs> so, you know, he kind of just kind of painted a, a great picture, of, you know, just more, more of a truthful picture. But, you know, as I was saying, my mother... And in the church, you had to be involved in something. And my mother gave us all piano lessons mm-hmm. uh, when we were young. And I started piano when I was eight years old. Mm. And it kind of didn't really stick until it got to me. And uh, the last four kids are, are musicians and uh, artists. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that's that was pretty much, pretty much my start uh, with music. And my mother always encouraging us to uh, play and perform. And as I said before, in the church, you had to be involved in something. You couldn't just, you know, go to church. So mm-hmm. you either had to be on the usher board or you had to be in the choir. And I didn't like any of that. And at the time, there was an organ player in our church. Uh, uh, by this time, we had moved to uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. My father had re- retired from the, uh, from the uh, service. And the reason why we wound up in Springfield, Massachusetts, is um, my, when, when I was uh, nine years old, my father got transferred to Plattsburgh, New York. So I went from segregated South <laughs> to Plattsburgh, New York. And, you know, the weather's quite different. Um, I didn't really have, I didn't have any white friends until I was nine or 10 years old. Wow. Uh, being in Plattsburgh. And my father, it was in 1965, my father was, uh, 39 years old, had fought two wars, fought World War II in Korea. Wow. And he had seven kids at the time, and they wanted to send him to Vietnam. Mm. 
and he was like, kiss my so-and-so. <laughs> that was in April of 65 in August of that same year. We were in Springfield, uh-huh. Massachusetts. And the only reason why he went to Springfield, Massachusetts, is because my mother had done a, a revival in Springfield. And she told my father about um, Springfield that, you know, Westover Air Force Base was in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Yep. It was still an active Air Force Base. So if he retired, he could still get his benefits and still get our medical and everything like that. So we wound up in Springfield because he didn't want, he did not want to go back to the uh, South. He didn't want to go back to Georgia and, you know, because of the whole situation. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, but, you know, and so that's how we wound up in um, Springfield. So and how did said, how did the, you feel? Uh, because that that's like two totally different cultures. Did it did it take you a while to adjust? Did it did it feel good? Was it scary or? Well, it was a little scary, um, but you know, as black folks, we're we're kind of accustomed to drastic changes mm. historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father, the thing that really freaked my father out. And kind of mess with me is that in the South, the lines were pretty much drawn. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, people didn't like you or there was a prejudice. It was just blatant. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really kind of got to us moving to Massachusetts is that it was much more subtle. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't overt and in your face. Got it. For the most part. Mm-hmm. And that that was a little bit of an adjustment. Because, you know, if somebody doesn't like you, it's very easy to, to deal with. Them, you right. Know? doesn't help that they can oppress you but you know it's like okay i know what time it is where is the north you know somebody's telling you that that you're they're your friend and then you walk down the street and suddenly you got a, a knife in your back and you're like whoa i thought you were so that was a bit of that that was a bit of adjustment mainly really for my uh, older brothers and sisters and my father and it was a little bit you know for me because I, I was younger um but i did like the uh the uh Purport, the, purport, the purported or illusion that, you know, things were equal and so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I can, I, you know, as you're talking, it, it struck me that, that that's almost more stressful than knowing where you stand. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It is. Because, because you, don't, you don't know. Yeah, it's not clear. Hmm. Interesting. I had never you thought make, of that. You make a movie. You make a move and you think it's clear, and then suddenly you're blocked. And you're like, "Whoa, okay." Mm-hmm. Good point. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's, and it's enlightening for me because I never thought of that, and uh, I think that's an important point. Okay, so you're in you're in Springfield. So when I was like thirteen, believe it or not, I started playing accordion. Don't ask me why. Ah. <laughs> Yes. It's an so, interesting uh, choice. Kid, yeah, black kid in Massachusetts playing accordion. With, you know, it's not like you're in New Orleans. I kind of was the original Urkel you know, from, that, from that TV show, the accordion. Uh-huh. Uh, but the one good thing was that I could fight, and I was a I was a uh, athlete, a jock. Mm-hmm. So people kind of left me alone. And plus, you know, the sharks are a little crazy. So, so I played that for about two or three years, and then at sixteen. You know, people always ask me, why did you start playing bass? I mean, I wish I could give some really heavy esoteric reason, but the original <laughs> reason was like any adolescent boys, I was, I was into, started being interested in girls and I thought girls like bass players. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd become a bass player. Um, but that lasted for 
a very short time once I got into the instrument and I said, well, forget about girls for a little while, for, for a minute. <laughs> and, and like I said, my, my mother was into the church, the Church of God in Christ, but my father was not. And in the, the uh, sanctified church, anything that's other than gospel music is pretty much the devil's music. Ah, I'm not sure what the definition of a sanctified church is. Um, well, going back to uh, the Pentecostal, the speaking in tongues, um, being filled with the Spirit and and shouting in church, that, that kind of thing. Like I said, I, I don't know if you've ever seen examples of that. Just in um, movies and oh, things, you know, but not, right, not, like not was, in person. Right. If you saw the movie The Blues Brothers mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. John Lucci, and it was kind of exaggerating the character, you know, people flipping up and, you know, down the aisle. <laughs> not quite that. It, it's similar, but not, you know, not not quite that exaggerated. Uh-huh. That must have been fascinating to be a part of, though. Well, you know, it's 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 really uh, it's really funny because being in the South, my mother did not send us, you know, the black school that was segregated were horrible. Mm-hmm. And my older brothers and sisters, when we ever we would move away from the South, you know, we move out to the Midwest or whatever, my, wherever my father got stationed, and they would want to put my older brothers and sisters back a year because they found out, you know, the Southern schools, black schools were, were horrible. Hmm. So the younger kids, myself. And my, um, you know, the, well, the, my my younger um, siblings, my mother found a way to get around that by putting us in parochial schools, Catholic schools, because mm. Catholic schools are pretty much homogeneous, mm-hmm. you know, nationwide. So when we did move away from the South, people would not be like, "Oh, you went to a you know parochial school, so it's fine." Mm-hmm. So that was always a uh, you know a challenge. I'm sorry, where were we going with this? <laughs> Well, I got you off track, um, but you, I think where you left off is uh, with playing the bass because you thought girls liked the bass and you did that for a couple of years. And then I'm not sure where you moved on from there. Well, let, let's, let's move forward about playing electric bass. I started on electric bass at, uh, oh, the devil's music. That's, that's what we were right, talking about. Right, right, right. Devil's music. Uh, sanctified. That's, that's what we're talking about. Right. So anything my mother would be bringing in music, uh, gospel music, like Mahalia Jackson, uh, Shirley Caesar, James Cleveland, mm-hmm. you know, those type of that type of music. And that's the type of music that she played. And that's the type of music that we had in, in uh, church services. But my father, like I, as I indicated, was not in the church. So he bought in, you know, Duke Ellington, Count Basie. He was listening to what my older brothers and sisters were listening to. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time it was Motown, um, you know, James Brown, Wilson mm-hmm. Pickett. That kind of material, he would bring that kind of material into the house. So it was a, a good mixture of, of music. Mm-hmm. I started a band when I was 16, but my mother was really very, I, I guess the word is progressive or very avant-garde, even though she was in, into the, um, you know, very religious and into the church, mm-hmm. uh, because there were certain norms that were not acceptable in um, the sanctified church, the Pentecostal church, the Church of God in Christ. Uh, for one, for one thing, you know, women couldn't wear makeup. Um, I, I didn't go to a movie until I was until I got to Plattsburgh. Wow! Because we lived on lived on the Air Force Base, but you weren't supposed. To, we weren't allowed to go to movies. We weren't allowed to go wherever the, the devil congregates. That's where we were not mm. to go. You know, women had to wear their uh, skirts below the knee. Mm-hmm. They weren't. Women didn't wear pants. So there were a lot of uh, sort of restrictions that were happening at the time, and 
I started playing bass also in the church. It wasn't just church on Sundays, it was all through the week. Mm -hmm. And you had to be involved in something. And, I, and as I indicated before, I did not like being on the usher board. I didn't like singing in the choir, although I did. So I looked around and I said, well, I'm playing bass. Nobody's playing bass. There's an organ player there. And I started playing bass. And the great thing about uh, the Church of God in Christ or Sanctified or Pentecostal churches is because there is a certain, a lot of energy there and a mm -hmm. lot of uh, spirituality there and a lot of intensity. And I think that was one of the things that I was going to say about when I, uh, about parochial schools when I went in the, uh, in the South. Back then, you also had to attend Mass, mm. you know, mm -hmm. Catholic Mass, yep. even though we were of a different uh, sect. And I never understood. I would ask my mother. I was, you know, very young. I said, Mom, I don't understand. The church is so quiet. <laughs> and, you know, I was, always, I was always scared every time I went into the church. It wasn't like my church, you know, where people were, you know, babies are crying. People are talking. The ministers getting the, the congregations are getting excited. People are speaking in tongues. You know, people are getting happy. The music is, is, is kicking and, and really incredible. And my mother would just say, "Well, what they're teaching you is fine, but this is what we're doing is is what you ad, uh, what you adhere to." Mm -hmm. So I started playing bass in church, and that way people left me alone as well because, you know, I was doing the Lord's work. You're playing, you know, you don't mm -hmm. bother the musicians because you're playing music for the Lord. Although I did have my my funk band that I was starting, you know, as, as a teenager as well. I think they also left me alone because my older brother was a little bit more of a, a rebel kind of gave him a hard time so i think they said well we better leave the sharp boys alone because they're a little <laughs> he would talk back to the minister you know hit on his the minister's daughters you know he was kind of a <laughs> sort of a rebel blaze the path so for think, you yeah so it made it made it much easier for me so by the time they got to me we said, well, we'll leave these boys alone this guy's playing bass playing music for the lord let's, let's leave him alone Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I was playing in church and uh, in high school and through college and also had my bands. I guess uh, it's what they soul music, what we, what we used to call it back then. Mm -hmm. And I was getting more and more into music and uh, more and more into playing. Then I, I went to the University of Massachusetts. I was a physical education major and saw all the um, medical uh, zoology and biology, all the stuff that you had to take, which I really hated. And mm -hmm. so... I got out of that and I uh, was still doing a lot of playing. Actually, my group was very popular when I was an undergraduate. We made a decent amount of money and played a lot uh, around campus. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was funny because I, I remember my oldest sister, 10 years older than me, she's an elementary school teacher. And some weeks I would make as much as she did. I was huh. like, wow. <laughs> you know, my girlfriend, who's my wife now, Cheryl, we were, we're, we're high school sweethearts. Oh. She was at UMass as, as well. But when I went to UMass, it was really a very extraordinary period. I don't think that, that period has ever been duplicated in terms of the, um, the intellectual and the artistic people that we had coming through UMass at the time. Uh, at the time, uh, Max Roach, who's like the father mm -hmm. of music for, uh, you know, for jazz, played with Dizzy Gillespie, you know, Miles Davis. He was at the University of Massachusetts at the time teaching and living in Amherst. Archie Shep, the great Archie Shep, was teaching there. Uh, Reggie Workman, bass player who used to actually play with John Coltrane back, you know, back in the early '60s, mm -hmm. was coming up from uh, Brooklyn and teaching uh, bass a couple of uh, days a week. Uh, Fred Tillis, who actually started the uh, jazz program, uh, Horace Boyer, 
who was a, a great gospel singer in his own right, uh, was also one of the foremost historians on gospel music. At first, uh, Horace Boyer and Archie Shepp took a very took an interest in me, mm-hmm. which I thought they obviously saw something in terms of talent that I wasn't seeing, and they actually spent a great deal of time help, helping me focus outside of the classroom and working with me. Uh, I used to go over to Archie's house and, and I would be playing, you know, I first started playing uh, upright and he'd be playing piano and he said, no, man, Jimmy Garrison would have played it like this. Of course, Boyer understood the whole gospel. He actually came out of the same church that I, I came out of. And so he understood the, the intricacies of the church. And I actually, he got me to play with the uh, Voices of New Africa House, which was the gospel choir at the University of Massachusetts uh, at the time. Mm-hmm. Later on, became um, an economics major because I had done two years at, U- at UMass and decided I wanted to, do, to go into music, but they wanted me to take eight semesters, which would, would have meant I would have had to go an extra two years. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm not doing that. So I majored in economics. My undergraduate degree is actually in economics. And, you know, an economics degree at, at University of Massachusetts in Amherst is not the same as an economics degree from Columbia. I'm not going to go work on Wall Street. You know, mm-hmm. it's more radical and more political more Marxist, and it was more abstract, and that's kind of the way my, my mind works. Mm-hmm. So it was very it was very easy for me to, to get through that. Mm-hmm. So during that time, you know, Max Roach, uh, Archie Shepp, these people, you know, are taking a, a great deal of interest in me. At the time, my senior year, Cheryl got pregnant with our first child. Mm-hmm. And so this is really strange because at the time, I wanted to be a musician, even though I was an economics major and... I've always wanted to, to to be a musician. Even when I was like nine years old, I always saw myself as being a musician. And you know, I, of course, you remember when the uh, the Beatles came to the U.S. in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Everybody was influenced by that, black and white. The Beatles did have an effect. I, I I used to, when I was nine years old, I used to walk around making up the names of my groups, what what it would be, because <laughs> I knew just knew I was going to be a musician, even though I, you know, I kind of was in the sports. My father thought that I was going to be a, uh, a soccer player, a professional soccer player. But actually, when I went to UMass, I was, I, was, I went as a, a wrestler and a uh, soccer player. Mm-hmm. But music is in your heart. No, music was in my heart. And so I'm thinking, you know, with, with Cheryl getting pregnant in my, in my senior year, I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to do music, and blah, blah, blah. And that lasted really for about 20 minutes. <laughs> Because I, I was doing a gig at, at Hampshire College, and she gave me the thumbs up. Because she, you know, she was back during that time. You know, you had to go to the doctors to get to get a pregnancy test. You couldn't just go right. to the drugstore. Mm-hmm. And so she gave me a thumbs up. So I'm thinking, okay, wow, okay, she's not pregnant. And then I get off stage, and she goes, no, the thumbs up with that is positive. <laughs> so. So on the break, like I said, for like 20 minutes, I'm like drugged. I'm like. Oh, musician I'm like all oh, this is going through my head and I'm like wait a minute there's people who raise families who are musicians it's funny because the perception of what people have of musicians and there's all different types of musicians there's you know there's pop musicians there's rock musicians there's jazz musicians the bottom line people are are very artistic and maybe look at the world a little differently mm-hmm. and sometimes the the reputation that musicians get is not the most positive mm-hmm some of it sometimes wanted and some of it sometimes not wanted. Um, but musicians, like anybody else, are human beings and they are subject to everything else that 
the uh, general public is. It's just that sometimes people who are artistic are sometimes a little bit more sensitive mm-hmm. yes. and are more perceptive. Mm-hmm. And especially, and I, I, I have to say this, and this is not to be braggadocious or anything, but you, jazz musicians are, are really some of the most uh, perceptive people and some of the most intellectual people that, that you will know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not just saying that about myself. I'm just saying in general, mm-hmm. the people that I, I perform with, I, I consider some of the most highly intelligent people that that I feel are on the planet, not only as, as an artist, but just in general as human beings in the way that they, that they view the world. Mm-hmm. I've just been fortunate enough and been awestruck that I've been around these people. And I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's actually famous uh, musician, um, TV personality. And I said, man, you know, we we're talking about some of our friends. We're like, they're crazy. And then we're like, I thought, well, man, we feel the most comfortable around them. So that must mean we're crazy too, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but crazy you know, sometimes in a not so good way, but crazy also in, in a, in a, in, in a good way. Well, yeah, it, so, to me, it's like thinking the ability to think out of the box. To, well, exactly, exactly, and and to be to feel more connected, have that that sensitivity and that perceptive ability to to really be more connected and to to see things in in more of a a holistic way or from a high kind of a higher perspective. Yeah, um, I think that, like I said, you know, we're we're human beings, and it used to I used to really get on some of my colleagues. That, you know, we play jazz, which is a spiritual sort of connection, but also a cerebral connection. You're playing some of the most difficult music on the planet and you have to be able to improvise. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing. You know, you don't you don't want to play the same tune the same way you played it last night. Right. I used to tell my kids I have the, the greatest job in the world. It's dad's job to do something different every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I might be some of the same tunes or something, but it's my job to approach it every day. So I, I think, you know, this is just my little, the way that I think and, and my perception of it. I think because we we have that, sometimes it gives us a different outlook of the world. Sure. As you say, out of the box, I think unconsciously or consciously, we, we think that there are no boxes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. per, per se. And, and, I, and I used to get in discussions, as I said, I used to get in discussions with my, with my colleagues about this is because there's a part of our brain that's more highly developed than the average person. Mm-hmm. But we, we'll go out and do just some mundane, stupid stuff. So what is that all? <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. It's like, wait a minute. I just, I just got off stage with you. And you're doing something stupid like this. It's like we just got through. But every person has that not just artists we all have something a, a part of our brain that's more high, more highly developed than the, than the other person the person next to you mm-hmm. with artists and the argument that i make is okay we have this part of our brain that's more developed than the average person why can't we take some of those same neurons and apply it to every aspect of our life you know Good why can't question. i you know it's like okay if i can figure out what oscar peterson is playing one of the greatest piano players ever. If mm-hmm. I can figure out what he's doing, I can pretty much figure out anything. You know, at least that's the way that that I approach things. And so it's just a matter of trying to move those neurons into how do I 
move that into a relationship that those same prowess in terms of intellectual prowess that I have, how do I move that into figuring out how to, to function in a, in a relationship? How do I figure out in order to raise a family? How do I figure that out in order to lay tile? You know, whatever it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it gives me a certain amount of confidence. If I can do that, I can pretty much do, do anything. And getting back to what I was saying about, you know, when I found out that my wife Cheryl was pregnant when we were in college, I've always been on the ilk that if, unless you were just dropped from heaven, you're a human being of average intelligence, um, you know, average physical uh, abilities. If, if a human being is doing it, that means that it can be done. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody has done it, right? That that's not the little what they've done. It's just a, how do I figure out how they did that? Right. You know, I I spend my energy not being envious or jealous or mad or anything like that. I spend my energy like, well, wait, what did they do? You know, I I can study them to, to see what it is that they did because they're human like me. So that means that it, it can be done. Right. Okay. Maybe I not, might not have the talent for that, but it's something that I like, but can I, I can develop it. No, in other words, I'm just always, if, if somebody's done it, that means it can be done. Mm-hmm. And when Cheryl, Cheryl got pregnant. I was like, "Well, wait a minute. I know there are people who are raising families who are musicians. So that's it. It can be done. So how do you do that? A lot of people are not successful at it, and some people are. Relationships in general. I've been with Cheryl for 47 years. I've been together 47 years, and mm-hmm. it's insanity. You put two people together, two different backgrounds, two different ways that they were raised. When two people people are getting married, it's just not those two people who are in the room. You got about six other people in the room." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got their parents, you got yep. their grandparents, you know, you, you've got all these influences. You know, sometimes you'll say something in a relationship and you'll be like, dang, where the heck did that come from? You're like, oh yeah, my father used to say that to my mother. <laughs> oh yeah, my grandfather used to say that, you know. Mm-hmm. So you add in the mix of being an artist and being on the road, that that, that creates a whole nother um, challenge that, right. that you have to, that you have to uh, work out. I'm considered a success, you know, at what it is that I do professionally, but I've also considered it a success at raising, you know, my family. That really comes from my father. My father was was very proud that um, he had eight kids, mm-hmm. and he was able to take care of them. You know, especially even in that time of era and and, um, and the uh, the whole social. An economic climate, especially when that was happening for for African Americans, you know, during during his time, mm-hmm. and so he was always very proud of that, and always very proud of, of his family, and so that had that had a, a big influence on him. Sure. Uh, in terms of the way I saw myself, I always saw myself as being a father, and mm-hmm. I always tell people my father taught me how to be a man, but my mother taught me how to be a sensitive man, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. That, my father was was, <laughs> as Cheryl says. My wife says, you've never been on the other end of you. (laughs) (laughs) That my father was very um, opinionated. Ah. And he was also of the ilk, if if you love somebody, you tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't color or filter it. It's like, bam, here it is. You know, no malice, no other ulterior motive. This is what I'm seeing. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way that I was. And my mother was like, pulled me aside and said, you can't do that. You can't, you can't be like your father to your wife or to your kids. You have to, you know, you have to 
find another way to say the same thing, but not so direct because you know everyone can't take that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, my father, like I said, is the one that really taught me how to be a man, but my mother taught me how to be a you know, more sensitive man. But I've always, you know, going getting back to what I was saying before that I feel that you have to be able to take the best thing that you're able to do and and figure out how to make that apply to, to every aspect of your life. And that is what I have tried to do, you know, just just as a human being. You know, I, I've been around some great musicians. And some who are great musicians and great people and some who are great musicians and not so good people. Mm-hmm. Who are some of the people that that you feel are great musicians and great, great people? Uh, one of the people I'm just about to mention is uh, Youssef Latif. Uh, Youssef passed actually about three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't realize that Youssef would have been the same age as John Coltrane if John Coltrane had lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, past 1967, Yusef uh, was born in 1920 and died in um, he was 93. Mm-hmm. But you know he's known as this great sort of sage musician and great saxophone player, great artist who was one of the first people to bring like uh, oboe, which is a classical instrument, into mm-hmm. jazz mm-hmm. to bring other African instruments, you know, into jazz. And I used to have discussions with him. Because he was, I used to tell him he's an example of what a human being should be. I mean, he was not only a great musician, but he was a, a, a great person, a very sensitive person, a very kind person, a very um, intellectual and very spiritual person as well. You know, extremely um, uh, spiritual, very religious. Uh, he, he was a Muslim. I used to have discussions with him that he, you know, it was more important to be a good person than to be a good musician. Mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously want to be a great and good musician, but I think to aspire to be a great person actually helps everything. It helps, you know, it helps your music. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody's different. You know, mm-hmm. Some may feel that they need an enhancement, you know, be mm-hmm. it uh, alcohol or drugs or whatever to get to whatever it is that they're trying to get to. But then that's fine. But that's just not the way that I see it. Mm-hmm. I think that all great artists, you know, it's just like any drug or anything like that. You might find a, a euphoria or a an opening, what you think, to creativity. But at some point, that door is going to close because the, due to the nature of the uh, enhancement that you're using, it, be, it goes backwards. It starts to go backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had um, challenges in my life. Never, I, I'm, I'm one of those, people used to call me the, uh, the hip square because I, I never did drugs. I used to tell my publicist, I, I said, man, I have a really boring life. I mean, you know, I've you know, never had any kind of substance abuse or you know, gambling, you know, the women problems, you know, it's just straight ahead. Very, sort of somewhat of a, a boring life. Now, I, I have had uh, challenges, you know, we all have challenges. You, you lose people uh, along the way. You watch people's health deteriorate. You watch your friends sometimes deteriorate and um, drink or drug themselves to, to death that that's not fun to watch and no. you know personal challenges you know we my wife and i've been together 47 years it hasn't always been smooth sailing but uh, those are those are the challenges when you lose people close to you that that has a an effect on you as well mm-hmm. wow so even though you have a quote-unquote boring life 
your I can imagine that your musical life is not boring. Um, no, no, you, that's what I mean. <laughs> I have a very exciting life, an extremely exciting life. But I always tell people I'm 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 somewhat of a boring person, but they say they don't believe it. But uh, I'm I, I think that's how I've been able to you know to avoid a lot of things. One of my best friends who who actually was on crack and has been sober um, for 25 years or so. Wow. Uh, he and I grew up together and. He said, Avery, the reason why you never got into anything, he said, into anything, he said, because you didn't like anything. He said, if it wasn't your family, your spirituality, or or music, you know, your family, friends, spirituality, and, and music, he said, outside of that, you didn't really like a lot of things. I said, that's not true. And he goes, think about it. And I had to really think about that. Uh-huh. I've, that's what I've been focused on from from day one, and I, I don't know why. And actually, my friends say the way that I talk now is they say, no, man, you've always talked like that. You know, since you were in high school, you've always talked more like more like an adult. And I said, well, that I attribute that to really to my father, because I hung around my father and his friends and my father hung around older people. Mm -hmm. So I really got uh, somewhat of a different view than sort of my my peers. Mm -hmm. And plus, I had older brothers and sisters who told me that my peers didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like especially in high school, it's like nobody knows anything. Everybody's just you know follow the leader kind of thing, and you know one or two people kind of know a little bit of what's going on, but the rest of everybody else is you know just kind of following the leader. And everyone says that I was just kind of focused. You know, I don't know why. I think I just was blessed to to perceive the world that like that. I mean, I, you know, Cheryl always accuses me of uh, reading textbooks. You know, because I especially I, I love biographies. I love the way. Mm-hmm. People look at things, especially given their challenges. We're all going to have challenges. It's mm-hmm. just you can't get out of right. You can't get out of this without some major challenges. That's just the way it goes. Right. I've never wanted to be anybody else. I just like to see how they view their challenges because that just helps me. Number one, know that I can. You know, going going back to my original premise that if if a human being has done something, that means that it can be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm always just have enough faith and enough um, fortitude and thought process that. I can do the same thing. I just have to study what they did or take their example. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and one thing I really always loved about my mother and my father is that they always led by example. Not my father so much, but my mother, she said she was doing X, Y, and you knew she was doing it. My father, maybe 70, 80% of the time, she might have been doing something. <laughs> but that, for, to me, you know, if my mother said something and she was doing it, I was like, okay, then it could be done. You can tell kids something to your blue in the face, but they're going to go by what they see. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. It's about action. <laughs> I keep telling yeah. the kids that you can say you're sorry all you want or you didn't mean to or whatever, but I, it's the action that I want to see, <laughs> you know, not, you know, I not mean, the talk. Right. I mean, I, I watched in terms of relationship, I watched how my father, you know, treated my mother like a queen. Mm-hmm. For those of you who, know, who are old enough to know who Lena Horn is, mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. African actress i mean alina horn could have walked in the room and my father would not have flinched <laughs> the only thing he would have seen is, is my mother <laughs> mm-hmm. so i learned how to how to respect and treat women because i had five sisters number one mm. and my mother made sure that mm-hmm. that the male, male did i walked away my father you know like i said treated my mother like a queen mm-hmm. and so that's the way that 
my brothers, you know, view their significant others and, and the way my, my two sons now view, you know, pretty much that I pretty much passed that along to them from, you know, from my father. Well, I think we really do learn by example more than anything else because people can say anything, right? And it's really, it's really the example, the action, what gets etched into your memory, um, not, not what people say. And, you know, I find it interesting that you, it sounds like you were so focused from a very young age, maybe not focused on the same thing throughout your life, but, but it sounds like you really had a thread of always being pretty focused not needing to bounce around or, you know, not sure what you wanted to do. You know, you sounded like you were pretty sure of yourself. No, I, I, I never needed others to, to really validate me mm-hmm. because like I said, I, I, you know, I had a large family. Mm-hmm. I always tell people the key to my success is that I had two people who I knew loved me, mm-hmm. my mother and father. The other seven people were told that they, that they, that they had to love me. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, if you have people who love you and, and support you, I mean, this is my feeling. I mean, some people have that and they're still, they still don't, you know, um, I guess it's perception, mm-hmm. you know, because you can have that and your perception could, you know, you can have a different kind of sensi- uh, sensitivity. You know, I know people, you know, who are drug addicts or who drink a lot and they're sensitive as well, mm-hmm. who are artists and, and who are not artists. And those people are sensitive. Well, sometimes I you know, think that's the problem is that they they're almost they're overly sensitive and they're dulling that. Yeah, or they they feel or perceive or see things that other people don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But whether it's valid or real it doesn't matter. That is what they're seeing. Right. You, know, you can't you can't you cannot discount that. Right. I was just fortunate that you know I came out looking at the world, to, you know the way that I did, and and the 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 older I get, I don't know how that that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't, I can't put that in a bottle and give that to anybody. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I have four kids, and you know, they all look at the world differently. There was right. eight of us. My parents said the same thing. I might have said, "Okay, that's cool." The person next to me might have said, "I don't understand it," and the person next to them would have said, "Boy, that hurt my feelings." I have, I have no um, rhyme or reason why that is. Yeah, why we look at the. Way we do right. I, I think it's it. We're all just wired differently. We all come in wired differently. I mean, some people naturally always look at how the glass is half full, and some people naturally tend to always look at how it's gl- half empty. Yeah, uh, and why? Why is that though? We don't. That's what I'm saying. You yeah, know, that we. You, you know, you can go to therapy. You can go to your minister, iman, or whatever, but. I mean, I, I wish I knew that. And the only thing that I can do is, is that, is that um, you know, it's it's funny. All the music I've done, all the music I've written, all the music I've played. But one of my favorite tunes is this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Mm-hmm. Which is like mm-hmm. a very simple tune, but it's it's so it's so profound. You know that. You know, going back to also what you said about leading by example. So if you had you let your light shine, or if you lead by example. That to me affects people more than anything else, no matter how they view the world. You know, because at some point they may be doing something and then they see you doing something and, and you know, it might hit. It's like, you know, you can, t- I, I've told my kids X, Y, and Z. And then one, it was funny, my, one of my, my oldest son when he was younger, he said something. 
he said something that an older man had said to him. And he looks at me and smiles and goes, God, I wonder where I've heard that before. <laughs> so letting me know it didn't really hit him until someone else said it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's not unusual. So, so he wasn't ready to hear it yet. And I just tell that to people all the time. Sometimes you're just not ready to hear something or may never be ready to hear it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm not ready to hear things or may never be ready to, to, to hear things. Right. But I, I, but I think leading by, you know, leading by example is, is, is very powerful. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's really important. And I think it's something that everybody needs to look at, especially in their families. You know, what what is the example that you are actually showing your children, your friends? Right. Exactly. Cool. So I think that that's that's a really good uh, uh, thread that we followed there. Let's go back to your music, though. What do you have any let's do you have any fun stories? I can only imagine you've played thousands of gigs with tons of different people. There must be some interesting stories of what people did you enjoy playing with most so far? Well, obviously it would be McCoy Tyner because I played with him steadily for a twenty year period. Okay. And I recorded probably over twenty four uh, twenty five recordings with him. Mm, wow. And he's probably one of the greatest piano players, definitely one of the greatest piano players of his generation. He's probably one of my one of my favorite people, mm-hmm. um, most favorite people. And I, we were together for so long that people thought it was a, it was there's always so many different rumors. One of the rumors was that I was McCoy's nephew. <laughs> and I was related to him, and um, I was like, well, could it be just as simple as that? We just get along our personalities are similar mm. one of the things i learned from him and sort of a story is that um you know like i said none of us are angels but i, I think he was consistent as as a leader very consistent and that's very matches my my personality and i don't i mean consistent what i mean by consistent i mean consistent in your uh demeanor in your uh, attitude and your uh, emotions, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, somewhat consistent. And I think that's the thing that kind of reason why we were so together for so long. Watching him as a leader would do more by example than actually saying what, what it is. And I watched how he dealt with challenges because, you know, you always have challenges on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, you have family challenges, you have just, just being on the road. I mean, you're in different, I always say you're in a different altitude, attitude. People, I, people. Uh, sometimes I would say people would ask me what I do for a living. I'd say I'm, I'm a human ping pong ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would think that'd be hard to be traveling a lot and different places and sleeping in different beds and. Yeah, it's it's not it's not normal. Mm-hmm. It's not normal. You know, you're always going to reach challenges. Flights get canceled. You know, gig gets canceled. Whatever. And I just watching the way that he dealt with things. In other words, okay, rather than let's, rather than getting emotional about it, okay. We're here for plan A. Plan A just got destroyed right in front of our faces. Okay, let's go to plan B. Okay, that plan B gets destroyed. In other words, you keep going down. You're mm-hmm. problem solved. And, mm-hmm. and going back to, to the music, what people don't realize as an improviser, you're actually solving a problem. Oh, how so? You're constantly solving a problem. How do I get through these changes? You know, mm. uh, chord changes, the musical changes. How do I make this sound fresh? That's a challenge. You know, you're solving a problem. As human beings, when you get out of bed, you're solving a problem every day, <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. Every you know, every wakeful moment, you you know, you're you're. They're not 
not always problems, but they're always challenges and choices that, that, you're, that you're solving. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I learned from them is to the problem solving. For mm-hmm. instance, we were going to um, we were going to Europe. This was back uh, probably in the eighties, and uh, the great Louis Hayes was on uh, drum. Louis Hayes had played with everybody: Cannonball Adderley, Oscar Peterson, anybody you can who's who in uh, who's who in jazz. Gordon mm-hmm. played with. So you know him, him and McCoy. I was the young. It was a trio, and I'm, I'm the young person. In the group. Cats old enough to be my father. <laughs> so they kept on saying that you know we're going to Greece. We're going to Greece. And in my mind, when they say we're going to Europe, I think of my passport. Mm-hmm. But we were, you know, we've been touring in, in the States and they said, okay, we're getting ready to go to Greece. We're going to Greece. And so I get into New York at JFK. McCoy gets to the air, uh, to the, um, airport late. So we're rushing. I, you know, and this is when I'm traveling with my big bass <laughs> fiddle, which is a coffin case. <laughs> and so I get there. I'm waiting for them. We get to the, uh, to the counter. And first thing McCoy says, okay, give me your passports. And I was like, oh. Greece, Europe, passport. <laughs> I'm thinking we're going to Ohio or something like that. And I said, wow, it's not, so it's not like I forgot my passport. I didn't, wasn't even thinking of my passport. Mm, mm-hmm. Did you even have one? Ah, of course I had one. I've been traveling for, you know, for, for a long time. I mm-hmm. just forgot it mm-hmm. because they said we're going to Greece. If they had said we're going to Europe, I would have immediately packed my passport. But I'm thinking I'm going like to Ohio. <laughs> so it didn't, it didn't dawn on me to, to get to do even bring my passport. And I said, McCoy, I, I didn't, I didn't bring my passport. He didn't get upset. He just looked at me, looked at the counter. And within like 30 seconds, he says, he says, we'll meet you there. Boom. And he was gone. <laughs> they took, he said, he said, we'll take your base. We took, he took, he took my base. He said, and they were gone. Oh, nice. Thinking, you got out oh, of having to carry that. I, I'm like sitting there with my mouth open thinking, they, they just left. Like, gone. They're gone. You know, no, no verbiage, no nothing, no conversation. I'll just meet you there. And sure enough, I went back home, got my passport. The next day I came, took the, the flight. We were actually going to Greece. We are actually going to Thessaloniki. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a long trip, a few flights. And I got there just in time for the concert. Wow. I didn't get a chance to change my clothes. I just clothes I had. But the way that he dealt with that mm-hmm. was so cool. It's it was just a funny story because I'm thinking I wasn't even thinking. It's like not like I like I said like I forgot my passport. It never dawned on me to even think about bringing my passport. I'm right. It was, well, and it sounds like very very level headed, very extremely level headed. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's, there's, like I said, there's a lot of stories I could tell, but there's a lot of stories I can't tell only to protect the guilty. But <laughs> there, there, there are a lot of things that, a lot of fun things that do happen on the road, and a lot of challenging things that, that, that happen on the road. I mean, there's just a lot of things that, that, that do happen, and, and a lot of fun. Like I said, I do live a very exciting life, but um, I'm a very straight-laced kind of person. I don't, you know. You're, you're not out. Out partying and and oh, uh, <laughs> no, I, I have you know I have fun, you know I go out, you know sometimes for motors and stuff will take us out, but the music is enough for me. Uh huh. Uh huh. Cool. 
back to the hotel and read a good book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it that sounds like... Oh, go ahead. You stay out of trouble that way as well. So. Right. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about improvising, and I thought, wow, because with improvising, you have to be flexible, and you've got to be able to really connect almost on a on a psychic level with the other people that you're playing with, and really be in tune with the the whole gestalt of everyone playing together and and improvising it must be fascinating to do that well well yes it is and, and that goes back to what i was saying before about the sensitivity of of artists because you you do develop a certain amount of sensitivity so in jazz you know for the layperson, if i'm improvising in other words i may have a melody to a tune and i've got chord changes so once i hear the melody I go back and make up really that's what improvisation is. You're composing on the moment. You're making up your own melody. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what always fascinated me about jazz as opposed to classical because I played, you know, both, mm-hmm. but in classical music, the whole concept is to sound like the person before you. In other words, if I'm a bass player, I'm supposed to sound like 20,000 bass players who played before me. In jazz, if I'm, a, if I'm playing bass, I'm, the whole purpose is to try to find your own voice you know that and, sounds like more fun <laughs> oh without a doubt to me it's, to me it's much more fun and with improvisation is that i'm actually supposed to hear it a split so i mean this is this is like this is like what really blows my mind about human beings we're such complex individuals and that beings that there's this whole thing that's going on when you're improvising you you actually supposed to hear it a split second. So, what, so in other words, when the audience hears me playing and hear me improvising, what they're hearing, I heard in my head a split second before that. Oh. So my brain has to hear that, then it has to translate that into the physicality of me producing that what I'm hearing. So I have to look at my instrument and and how do I produce that sound that I'm hearing in my head to get it out so that everybody else hears it. Now, along with that, you've got this whole thing with your neurons happening and, you know, the whole uh, physiological thing that's happening with you. But then there's also uh, the sort of esoteric, the spiritual that's kind of happening all within that and the energy that you're putting out and that the energy that the audience is receiving and then coming sending that energy back to you. So it becomes like a sort of reciprocal, mm-hmm. you know, sort of search. Mm-hmm. To me, that's, that's one of the most fascinating things about improvisation and it can go anywhere. You don't, there's no judgment. There's no, um, you, you're open. Right. Right. You, you know, you're open. It's like, okay, somebody's playing something you might be inspired by, you might hear it and you might be the one, the main one who's soloing and somebody might play something. And that might you might oh let me go that direction mm-hmm. or you're you're soloing and and then the, the people who are supporting you are saying oh he's going in that direction so let me play this or play this chord or whatever mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's really a, it's really a somewhat of a fascinating thing I think I think uh, Cornell West said it best you know jazz music which was basically created by African Americans music that was created. Which is somewhat, it's a democratic uh, process mm-hmm. in that 
if I'm soloing, the other people around me are supporting me and letting me have my voice. Mm-hmm. So it becomes almost like a town meeting mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you stand up, you, you voice what it is that you that you have to say. People will support you or not support you, but mm-hmm. you at least you have a voice. And it's been said that the people who had the least amount of democratic rights created the most democratic music hmm. in the world. Interesting. It also sounds to me like the epitome of being in the flow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, or as, as, as athletes, we call it in the zone. In the zone, yeah. 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 Well, at least that's where you try to get to. Some people are not great players and you know, don't sound like that. But those who are on a, on a, at a certain level, yes, that, that happens. And it, I, I think it was funny. Um, Louis Hayes, great drummer. We were, we just got through playing and, um, people came backstage and this one person said, wow, that was fantastic. But, but that was, did I feel like a really special moment? And yes. Louis looks at me and looks at the person and he goes, every moment is special. He <laughs> said, you know, he said, you're hearing it for the first time. We hear it all the time. And we're always, you know, so it's always special to us. We're always trying to improve on it. So every night is special. Cool. Huh. That sounds like a good place to uh, to end. I like that. Um, I just had a thought. Is there an album that you particularly like that I could put a link to that maybe they could download on iTunes or something or, or listen to snippets of? that I could put a link to on the website so that people could hear a little bit of, of your uh, talent. Wow. That's like trying to ask a mother, which child they like the best. <laughs> well, it could be a couple. <laughs> sorry, to cor- <laughs> sorry to corner you like this. <laughs> never ch- you never tell a child who's your favorite. Right. So. Right. Just something that's, you know, kind of exemplary of, of, of your, you know, the way you play and express yourself. Maybe an old record. Maybe Family Values. Family Values. It's an extended family three. Okay. And is that is that something that would be on iTunes that I can find the link for and put it on the... Yeah, you can find stuff? it or even on, on YouTube. Ah, okay. okay. All my stuff is on YouTube. Just type me up on YouTube and all my stuff will come up. Oh, okay. So people can easily do that, and they just have to remember sharp is with an e on the end, and exactly. um, and and I'll put I'll put uh, some links on the on the website too. Um, this has been awesome. Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with? Uh, no, I just hope I didn't go too off off too much on tangents, which I sometimes do. No, we 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 do tangents here, so. <laughs> Well, this has been really awesome uh, connecting with you. Do you have a new record coming up or any gigs or anything? I'll be with my trio in Long Island uh, for a fundraiser for the, uh, you know, John Coltrane's home was, was in uh, Long Island, New York. And I think they were going to tear it down several years ago. So they, they formed this nonprofit society to help restore it. Oh, nice. So I'll be doing a fundraiser for that. And then... Um, Actually, I'm going to New Orleans with Archie Shep in May. Oh, fun. And I've got a, um, in talks now with um, a local symphony about doing another project with them, mixing jazz with classical music with uh, choirs and everything. Oh, nice. Sounds like Love fun. 
and I've got a, a new record that I'm going to be recording uh, this August, mm-hmm. which will be out uh, in 2019, as well as the um, piece that I'm writing for um, for orchestra. Oh, nice. You are a busy boy. Yeah. 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 Never a dull moment. Never <laughs> dull. That's, 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 that's why I'm boring, because there's never a dull moment. Oh, that's great. Well, and oh, um, how could people uh, connect with you? You Do you have a website or anything that, uh, and what would that be? www.averysharp, with an E-S-H-A-R-P-E dot com. Okay. Or they can Google me, Avery Sharp, uh, base, and a number of stuff will come up. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Avery. It's been really nice chatting with you and um, it's been wonderful to reconnect definitely definitely thank you for listening and thank you so much Avery Sharp for taking time out of your busy life to share your story with us it really has been fun for me the podcast website is realjanine.com and remember that's J-A-N-E-A-N you can listen and download episodes There are links to guest web pages, photos, and you can sign up for the Real Janine bi-weekly newsletter to keep up on new episodes, archives, life updates, and always a healthy recipe. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Do you know a few people who would enjoy my conversation with Avery Sharp? Perhaps there's someone who's had a desire to be a musician and needs a little more inspiration. I'll bet you do. Please share the love. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.